Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I catch up with managing partner of FX Fowl, an incoming president-elect of the AIA, New York, Guy Geyer. Guy and I chat about his views on why architects need to create more value for themselves in the market and some of their responsibilities as professionals. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Guy Geyer. All right, guys, all the way from New York City, please welcome managing partner of FX Fowl, as well as leader of the firm's corporate and interior design practice and partner level champion for marketing, communications and business development, Mr. Guy Geyer. Guy, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here. So a little bit more background for our listeners. I hope you don't mind too much, but uh, Guy is an architect and interior designer with over 36 years of experience in design and management of corporate and institutional projects. In addition to his role at FX Fowl, Guy is president-elect of AIA New York, and he sits on advisory boards and multiple schools of architecture and interior design across the country, is a frequent speaker in things like TEDx Times Square, Fortune's Brainstorm Green, NACOR New York, if I'm saying that right, IFMA National Conference, and all kinds of other stuff. He's been featured in Interior Design Magazine, Grid, Interiors and Sources, Architecture, Architectural Record, and won the AIA New York Chapter Design Award. He's also won numerous awards, including 2009 Cornet Global Sustainable Leadership and Design Award and the 2008 Award of Honor from the Society of American Registered Architects. The AIA also named Guy a fellow of the Institute, and he's active in the New York chapter of AIA, currently serving as vice president of outreach. And like I mentioned, the president elect Guy has been featured in industry conferences all over the place and speaks all over the place. And apparently he's won just about every award you can win in architecture. So that's my extended. If you guys haven't uh, followed FX foul in the past, like that's who we're talking to today. So I'm, just honored to have you on the show today. Thanks, Josh. So you and I met um, what, a few years back now at a networking conference and uh, a thing that I had the, the pleasure of joining and speaking at a little bit as well. And I remembered um, my wife actually got to tag along to that one and, and she got to sit next to you at dinner. And afterwards she was like, I like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> So That's you've been good. on my list here for a little while of somebody to catch up with. So that is very good. So, yeah. so um, maybe we'll come back to the AIA thing in a minute because I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But um, sure. maybe before we get into that, tell me a little bit about your origin story. How did you get started in this world of interior design and architecture? Okay. Well, um, I uh, am the son of an interior designer and um uh, my father was in, involved in the uh, retail residential furniture business um, and design business for his entire career. So we always had design uh, in our home. We always talked about design and um, every new home, every new thing that was being built, uh, I would sneak away with him and we'd walk through the 
uh, houses they were getting framed up and probably not supposed to be there together, but we were anyway. <laughs> and so it sort of I'm sure with hard hats and all that, right? Wet my appetite, but I also, at the same time, you know, going through um, middle school and high school in the '60s, late '60s, uh, graduating from high school in '72, but that was a time where we were all involved with the space race uh, with the Russians. So I actually ended up deciding I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer and uh, took Russian in high school, thinking that that would be a good idea because I could communicate with those guys. And um, ended up taking as part of that uh, mechanical drawing class, which the first semester of which was uh, all about drawing solid objects, engineering shapes, things like that, um, which frankly was a little boring, but it, I figured, well, that's what I have to learn how to do. And then the second semester of that class was architectural drawing. And so we started drawing building elevations and floor plans, and I just sort of got the bug. So that was, I think, sophomore year in high school. Uh, it, it became obvious that I was a lot more interested in that uh, to me than, than the engineering side of things. So I kind of continued and did some additional work relative to art and, and design in high school, ended up getting into the University of Virginia Architecture School. And as they say, the rest is history. So um, that's really kind of how I uh, came to getting into architecture. And it's been a great career. And I've stayed in touch with University of Virginia and been on the board of an advisory board there for a number of years and uh, kind of uh, seen uh, a lot of great evolution of that school and other educational institutions. So anyway, that's kind of the, that's how it all started. Do you ever think back to how life might be different if you'd stayed the course of the uh, kind of the whole space race direction? <laughs> yeah, there are times, I mean, it's still very interesting and exciting to me. I was really intrigued the other day when the, SpaceX guys landed their rocket back in uh, Cape Kennedy upright on a landing pad. I mean, that stuff to yeah. me is just incredible stuff. I, I I still love reading about it and 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 seeing what's going on, but I don't regret uh, the direction I took at all. Very cool. Well, maybe you can um, fast forward to today and tell us a little bit about your practice and kind of maybe what a typical day or a typical week looks like for you personally. <laughs> typical, huh? Yeah, well, um, fast forward. So uh, as a managing partner here, I uh, do a lot of different things in the firm. Uh, I'd say the, the, the biggest uh, part of what I do is just kind of strategy, and that applies to a lot of different things. It has to do with marketing and business development, where we uh, where we want to concentrate our efforts, which sectors of architecture we want to pursue, and what we feel are going to be the most uh, um, successful areas for us, and also areas where we would like to maybe expand into different markets that we have not been in the past that we feel we have a little toehold, and that it would be worth um, our efforts to pursue a little bit more aggressively. So that's a big part of what I do. I help uh, my partners and the various teams in the office put together proposals, presentations, kind of uh, in, a, in a kind of backseat way, but, but 
always helping to guide the direction that they take. In addition, uh, I have day-to-day kind of -day managerial responsibilities for you know the business. Uh, um, I, I, one of my partners is our managing director. He's, I would say, what I would liken to more of a COO and uh, my role is more of a CEO, a CEO role. So my kind of focus is looking outward in the business and his focus is looking inward to operations and finance and all that. But he and I are really a team and we talk about, along with one other partner, we form the management committee of the firm. You know, we, we kind of deal with the day-to-day, week-to-week business issues that the firm uh, has to confront legal, accounting, um, contracts, all that fun stuff um, that nobody ever told us about when we were in architecture school. We just had the fun stuff in school. We said, okay, this is great. And then you have to uh, learn how to run a business, which is, which is great. Um, and then on top of all of that, <laughs> I also get involved with projects. So um, I spend between 25 and 30% of my time, I'd say on a regular basis, working on particular projects. Um, so I have a couple corporate interiors projects right now. I have a hotel project that I'm very involved with. And I've got a couple building projects, a nursing school uh, building that's uh, under construction at Columbia University. And so it's a fairly diverse group of projects that I get involved with. Um, but I would say kind of my focus has been for a long time on interiors, and I enjoy doing that a lot. And uh, it's it's a it's a very program-driven, user-driven type of pro uh, project all the time. And I enjoy learning about my clients, finding figuring out what makes them tick, and then translating that into design. So that's the range on any given day. I have fairly booked schedule uh, with lots of meetings back to back. Um, but you never know when something's going to throw a curveball. And uh, like just today, I, we, we were invited for an interview for a new project tomorrow, uh, which we now we have to get ready for on very short notice. <laughs> and I had to cancel a whole bunch of meetings that <laughs> I thought I was going to be going to tomorrow morning. But um, but these are all good things. That's the way it works. It's kind of fun that you never quite know what your day has in store for you when you get up in the morning. So Cool. So on those... Um I mean, it's sort of good news, bad news on the the shortlist pitch opportunity. Yeah. Are you guys typically um, following those kind of pursuits where you're one of many and you're doing the full RFP song and dance, or do you manage to avoid some of that? So, yes. Well, we pursue work uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, there are times when uh, a client, just because we have a relationship, they know us already, um, they will send us an RFP or ask us to write a proposal without an RFP. Those are always the, the, the best because uh, they're usually coming to you because they like working with you and you have a relationship already. Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, maybe a third of our projects actually these days come to us in that way. But there are times when we have to go through the entire kind of song and dance routine of, being solicited for a qualifications package. Uh, we may be one of 12 or even you know, more sometimes. It's sometimes an amazing amount of firms that are asked for these things. 
um, you submit a quals package and then they shortlist down to a group that um, are either interviewed or asked for a proposal. Uh, and then, um, you know, finally a decision is made. We try to stay out of situation. We, we're very, uh, our filters are, have gotten better over the years, I think, about which projects we think make sense to pursue, even if we're invited to participate. Um, and there are times when we will just tell a client, thank you very much, but, you know, we don't think this is either the right kind of project for us or the timing is not good. We can't commit a team. And um, uh, that does happen, although not not often. The, the other selection process that is sometimes used these days more often than I would like to see are design competitions uh, where clients solicit a group of firms to um, not just submit your qualifications and proposal, but actually come up with a design proposal as part of that. In those cases where we are asked to do that and they are not going to reimburse us in any way as a stipend or some kind of uh, reimbursement for costs, we will usually pass on those opportunities. Mm -hmm. since it's a really unique uh, project that we feel like it's worth a shot. But in most cases, we'll turn those down. Um, and in cases where at least they've shortlisted down to just a few firms and then have a design competition and will pay a stipend, those kinds of things we will participate in if we think it's the right kind of project. Sure. But unfortunately, there are all too many cases these days where clients are asking us for <laughs> some form of free design ideas, um, free design work. <laughs> and... Um, and, and I, I turn, we turned down a project about a year or so ago for a very nice project in upstate New York. Um, it was a 300,000 square foot office building, it was going to be highly high performance, uh, energy efficient building right up our alley. But they were asking 12 firms to submit proposals and design ideas. Oh, man. And, and then on top of that, we were not going to be able to have the opportunity unless they decided they want to meet us to present that design idea. So they were going to look at that just on the basis of what we sent them in the proposal, which I'm, uh, I'm very much against that selection process. I don't think it does anyone any uh, uh, justice in terms of um, picking the best firm to work with. Yeah. And so we dropped out of that. We did not pursue that and uh, um, life goes on. But anyway, so the selection process can vary pretty widely uh, these days and we just try to be as selective as possible so we don't get tied up in a lot of uh, useless work well maybe on the other side what do you think makes a, a great client for you guys and where do you feel like most of those clients come from well i think uh, the great clients are those that um, share our values they are uh, whether it's developers, institutional clients, interiors, um, corporate, really whatever category it happens to be, that there's a um, strong commitment to great design, that they perceive there's a value to design, that it matters and that it, it will improve uh, the performance of their organization and it'll have a benefit not just to their own organization but outside of their organization to the city 
and kind of the greater good. So that's one critical component we look for. Um, I think a commitment to sustainable design and a willingness to look at uh, solutions that allow us to save energy and save resources and uh, think about projects, you know, from a sustainable perspective. Um, and fortunately, our reputation is strong enough in that area that clients come to us for that. So, so that's a good thing. We also focus on urban projects. We we look for projects that are within an urban context. We don't typically get involved with projects that are suburban or not in an urban context, unless they might be on a university campus, which is a whole kind of urban context of its own anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we also look for clients who are interested in doing uh, innovative work, not not to be grandstanding about it or to be in, you know reinventing the wheel or doing things that are crazy, but just to look at how can we design and look at ways to build this project that brings some innovation to the process or the way the building's put together, uh, whatever it might be. And um, those, those, the combination of those things, I think, is what leads us to great clients and great clients to us. And, you know, in the end, uh, projects that we're all very happy with. Cool. We were talking a little bit before um, the beginning of the show about kind of how your um, residential work in the city has continued to evolve. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's driving that and kind of how you guys have evolved with your approach there. Sure. Well, I'd say for the last 10 or 12 years, we've gotten a lot more involved with residential work. It's not something the firm had done much before that, uh, but uh, we had a few developers that we had done other types of projects with who were getting into the residential market and they asked, asked us to start doing those. And um, so we learned quickly. We we teamed with other firms who had done residential work before and, and learned and, and now have a very robust practice in residential multifamily high-rise projects uh, in a wide range of typologies, but everything from affordable subsidized housing all the way up to very high-end condos. Uh, what, what has happened more recently uh, as the high-end condo market has become a bit saturated here in the city, those types of projects have started to slow down or, or reduce in number. And what we're seeing more is middle market and affordable and more of a move towards rental properties as opposed to condos, um, which is an interesting uh, uh, kind of evolution to that market. Mm -hmm. And I think in the long term, probably good for the city um, (laughs) that 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 is the case. I think there's still some problems uh, with um, government subsidies and how they are structured that need to be worked out um, to really get the affordable housing market moving in the kind of direction it should be to meet the goals that the mayor, Mayor de Blasio and others have set for the city. But uh, in the end, I think that'll be worked out. And uh, we just, we're very happy that we're actually working more in that sector. We've got a couple projects now um, that are in the affordable housing market and, and uh, you know, it's really interesting and exciting work to, to be doing. How does that impact um, maybe your personal process or the firm's design approach? 
um, when you're working on like a, an affordable housing project as opposed to, you know, high end tower kind of thing? Yeah. Well, um, you have to you have to reset your your priorities and also, you know, the kinds of cost uh, structure for the project. So obviously you're not going to be using the same kind of materials and systems that you might use in a high end condo project. But um, I think that's what makes it sort of interesting and challenging is to find uh, kind of innovative solutions that can save money not just in the materials uh, themselves, but even in the construction technique. One thing we're, we're doing some R&D work with and, and have a couple potential projects uh, coming down the pike is um, prefabricated uh, units uh, mm-hmm. that can be built off site and uh, you know, constructed on the, on the, on the site as uh, prefab units um, stacked up um, and tied together. So, it, it, I think that market has led us to think about things in new ways, which, um, you know, ultimately could also benefit um, other parts of our business. So um, I, I think uh, it's, it's uh, like I said, it's just kind of resetting your attitude. We're, we're also part of our commitments to sustainability and energy efficiency has led us to become very much an expert in passive house technology, which is a European technology approach to design that we now have three certified passive house designers here and uh, for dormitories and housing projects we're starting to look at ways to apply passive house technology which is a essentially you create a very tight envelope where there's very little uh, loss of heat loss or heat gain through the building skin and you can cut your energy use by 80 to 90% over what a standard building uh, methodology would give you. So um, it's a little bit, it's a tiny bit more expensive, usually runs about 5%. We've done a couple studies, one funded by the state of New York through NYSERDA that show it's about a 5% increase in construction cost, but by so significantly cutting your energy use, uh, the payback on that is very reasonable within 10 years or less, uh, which, you know, becomes very compelling for somebody to think about. Are there any particular um, hallmarks of a passive house technology kind of project besides the savings? Like are there typical things that you levers you kind of have to pull to, to make that work? Again, the, 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 the envelope itself has to be very uh, airtight. So you, basically look for every source of potential leak, mm-hmm. <laughs> leakage, uh, and, and air infiltration. So everything's very tight, uh, tightly constructed. You, the windows themselves have to usually be, uh, triple paned windows and, um, uh, they have to be thermally broken. So you're not getting heat transfer or cold transfer through the window. Mm-hmm. Slab edge conditions need to be, treated in a way where you eliminate thermal bridging as well. Uh, uh, so those kind of things, and then just, uh, you know, mechanical systems and, and other things that are, you know, going to reduce energy use in general. Um, but the biggest thing is creating an air, a very tight envelope, uh, which, uh, means that you also, aside from the detailing that we have to do, we have to get contractors that are, on board and, and willing to kind of follow that um, 
prescriptive approach. What, what it's done for us, I think, is that it's gotten us much closer to construction techniques. You know, for years, architects have sort of, we put our drawings together and we say, okay, it's up to the builder to build this and figure out how to do it. Now, with Passive House and other um, energy savings uh, technology, we are getting our hands dirty a little bit more, which I think overall is a good thing for the profession. Well, maybe on the other side of that, how do you feel like um, recent changes in technology and the architecture and engineering space has impacted how you guys do things? Well, uh, for one thing, the continuing use and expansion of uh, building information modeling or BIM through and, and other design software has really changed our internal process about how we design projects and how we document them. Um, I think as contractors and consultants and engineers all become more and more attuned to that as well, which is happening very quickly, and integrating uh, building information modeling into their own processes um, is going to have a profound different uh, impact on the way we design and build projects. Uh, there will be more automation in the field as well. We're seeing Robot, uh, robotic construction techniques starting to find their way into the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think we will continue to see big efficiency gains uh, as we go forward. And, and hopefully that will lead to cost savings as well. It's a complicated equation, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, I think uh, time is money. The faster we can do things, the more effectively and efficiently we can do it. Um, the more value there'll be for the, for the client. Well, maybe that's a good um, segue to talk about maybe architecture in general. I'm kind of curious what you feel like are maybe the biggest misconceptions of, of the architecture industry or especially with your role in the AIA. Like what, what do people maybe misperceive about either your firm or architects in general? Well, I, I think that, uh, Unfortunately, architects in many cases have allowed themselves to become commoditized and we have not done a good enough job at convincing the public and our clients and everybody else that there is high value in what we do and that there's a high degree of expertise and knowledge in what we do. I think some people very naively think, well, you just you know draw a bunch of blueprints and uh, they go out and build a building and it's obviously a little more complicated than that. Um, we're not only interpreting our clients' needs, but we're also integrating zoning and political issues and uh, urban planning and uh, lots of outside influences in, in the work that we do. And I think uh, the integrating of all of that is what architects are best at. And and and. Uh, we kind of have lost, uh, to some degree, some of us, uh, I think, in the profession, have lost that kind of central role in the design and construction process. So I, I, I think it's more that we have to, have to think more like that. I think we've also allowed things to happen to us, and we have to be a little more activist uh, in our attitude about things, both politically and um, and from a design perspective, we have to kind of fight for things that we believe in a little bit more aggressively. I think the AIA has 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of different opinions about the AIA. I think at the local level, and certainly here in New York, the chapter is doing a great deal and returning a great amount of value to, to our members, whether it's in the programs we run at the chapter at the Center for Architecture in, in, um, in the village, which every night is booked with events. Every, almost every minute of every day has something going on. Uh, that our members can take advantage of, or the exhibits that we have, uh, or the committees that operate within various parts of the profession to look at professional practice, or uh, global uh, practice, or um, uh, a number of you know other areas, uh, women and diversity and issues of that sort as well. And we are doing a lot for the benefit of the of the profession and a lot for our members even in education and uh, architectural registration exams that the younger architects need to take and pass to become licensed architects so there's a lot of benefit on the ground here in new york i don't know that that always translates to our members on the national level and um, so that we need a, as a as a as the AIA nationally, uh, the, the AIA needs to do a better job of communicating uh, that to its members. I think that there was quite a bit of controversy immediately after the election that the national AIA came out with a statement that caused a lot of uh, uh, anger and unhappiness among the members. Um, I think the AIA realized uh, the mistake that had been made and have worked double time now to kind of demonstrate a commitment to the core values of the Institute. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a wake up call for a lot of people, but I think in the end it's now becoming, it's, it's generating the right kinds of things and the, and the kind of action that the national AIA needs to take on, on, on various issues. So it's, it's uh it's been good. So I would imagine with your, your role as uh, incoming president elect um, that you're going to bring your own sort of background and passion and, and values to bear. I'm just kind of curious locally what, what you're excited to focus on in that incoming presidency. Well, one thing for sure that I'm going to be focusing on next year is the, uh, fact that the national AIA convention is coming to New York next year. Oh, um, very cool. So, <laughs> so that's going to be a big uh, part of my year um, in helping the chapter get ready for that, but also integrating what we're going to do with the national convention folks that organize the convention every year. Uh, I think that I mentioned activism. I think that will be something that I'll be pushing uh, very hard on. Um, there is usually a theme uh, uh, that the national AIA uh, commits to for the convention every year. I don't know what that's going to be next year. So I'm holding off a little bit on developing a final direction to see how I want to respond uh, to them. But, you know, we're going to, the local chapter will do a lot uh, to support that convention with tours of New York, uh, venues that people will 
uh, be able to get into that they would not normally get into if they were just coming off the street. It's going to be very exciting. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And hopefully, given we're here in New York, we have such a national stage here for design that we'll be able to get a lot of great uh, high profile folks with interesting ideas that participate both in the convention activities and the activities that the chapter itself will organize during uh, next year. So going to be a great opportunity. Awesome. I haven't been to one of those yet, but that sounds like the one to attend. You should come. You should come. They're, they're, they're a lot of fun. Uh, if you pick your activities wisely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like I got the, uh, the inside scoop here, so I'll be hitting you up to figure out what those are. Okay. <laughs> so guy, maybe to shift a little bit, tell me about one of your proudest professional moments as an architect. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I would say that, uh, and I'll, I'll mention only that, you know, I was very uh, happy and proud and pleased to be named a fellow of the American Institute of Architects five years ago. So that was a very proud accomplishment. But relative to my project work, um, I think that the one that stands out for me the most is one that, uh, project I mentioned earlier that we are, it's now under construction, nearing completion is the School of Nursing for Columbia University. And uh, what, what I'm most proud about is that we, when we won that project in the way about which, the way we actually did win the project, because I think it's illustrative of how we kind of work as a firm. The, um, uh, that was one of those cases where Columbia had shortlisted four firms and uh, asked us to develop a design proposal, but they paid us a stipend to do it. Um, so they did it the right way. And the brief was to build a, a four-story building for the nursing school on um, a full kind of half of a block uptown at 168th and Audubon Avenue. Uh, and to build four stories and then uh, reserve the additional air rights that they had on that site for future construction of an additional four stories on top of that for a different program. And uh, my team and I looked at that and said, well, that doesn't make sense because if they build four stories for the nursing school and then later on come along build another four stories, uh, they're going to have to shut down one floor of the nursing school uh, at least the nursing school won't really have its own identity. It'll be sandwiched under something else. Logistics and construction costs would be a nightmare. You're going to build columns and foundations for an eight-story building underneath the nursing school. So they're going to be paying a disproportionate amount of their share of the building, all those kinds of things. And we said, why not build an eight-story building on half of the site? and leave the other half open for future development of a second mm. story building. And we went in, I mean, this was a kind of, you know, you roll the dice because you're not, you're ignoring <laughs> the rules. <laughs> um, but it made imminent, imminent sense to us to do this. There was no doubt that this was a better approach. So we were the only of the four firms, we were the only one to go in and make that proposal and we got the job. Love it. After we won the job, 
the dean of the nursing school told me that as soon as we presented that idea and showed the logic behind it, she knew that we were the right firm for the job. So that's the kind of out of the box thinking that I think that our firm is great at, but it's also one of those examples where, you know, you just kind of do what you think is right and uh, let the chips fall where they may. But, but, you know, most of the time, if you make the right kind of argument for it, you're going to come out ahead. So um, that was, that was very exciting to, to win that project over the competition that we were up against and in the way that we did it. So I think there's, there's always something to be said for that sort of challenger sale approach of, right. you know, coming to the table with a point of view and not just being the order taker. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any, um, design heroes, either folks that you looked up to kind of coming up in the industry or guys that you look up to currently? Yeah, well, uh, there's a long list. <laughs> I would say, um, you know, when I was in school, I, I became very uh, enamored with uh, Corbusier. And uh, uh, he, so he was an early hero. Um, and then uh, kind of coming out of that uh, as, a, as a, you know, kind of evolution out of that, the New York Five, uh, you know, Graves, Eisenman, Guathme, um, uh, Meyer, and Haydick, they, they, they were all interesting to me and intriguing in their work. Probably Michael Graves among them were, was someone that I really, uh, whose work I really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'd say, you know, th- through, through the years, I would, I would always look at someone like Aldo Rossi, uh, for inspiration and, uh, loved his work. And now, uh, uh, Renzo Piano. Mm-hmm. But I also look at, um, now since many of my classmates and colleagues from years ago are, um, you know, reaching some prominence, I, I, uh, also, uh, look at the work of uh, Weissman, Freddie, and Marion Weiss. I went to school with Marion, and uh, we're still friends. And um, I, I think their work is is fabulous work, um, and I admire what they do a tremendous amount. So, it's a wide range, but uh, but very much a kind of modernist strain. Obviously, what you're what you're seeing in all of that, and a very detail and attention to the kind of craft of architecture, how buildings go together, um, that kind of ties all of that, those together. Do you have any, um, dream projects that you haven't tackled yet that you'd still <laughs> like to do in the future? Yeah, I would love to do an urban headquarters building. Um, I've done, we've, we've done a lot of interiors work. We've done a lot of buildings. We've done, headquarters buildings outside the city. Um, but I would love to do a user specific headquarters office building in New York. Uh, I think that'd be very exciting. As a branding guy, I can definitely understand that. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds yeah. cool. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's great to be involved with kind of quote spec office buildings and, 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 and all, but, but I think that doing something that is really 
bespoke for the client uh, that integrates the interiors with the building design uh, would be a great opportunity. And I'd love to do something like that. Very cool. You know, one of, one of my favorite questions to ask uh, designers and of all kinds really is what they're most obsessed with right now. So what do you, what do you think that is for you personally or professionally? What, what do you find yourself most obsessed with? I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, worrying about and thinking about how we uh, uh, document and detail and, you know, figure out how our buildings go together so that they both um, kind of achieve the design vision uh, and also can just simply get built in an efficient way. So the integration of design and technology is the thing that I kind of think about in terms of the practice an awful lot. You know, beyond that, it's it's where's the next job going to come from and <laughs> you know, uh, all of that. But 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 the the thing that I am most obsessed with, I think, is just that integration of the design and technology. Cool. So maybe the answer to this question is where's the next job going to come from? But I'm curious if there's anything in the architecture world right now that just drives you crazy, either trends or, or things <laughs> that you see happening around you. Well, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I will, I guess I restate it. It, it drives me nuts that architects don't uh, uh, kind of willing to bend over backwards so much and do so much work for free and kind of uh, allow our, our, allow the world to push us around as much as we do. Uh, that That's the thing I think that bugs me the most about the profession. And I think we just have to, we have to have a louder voice and a stronger voice in the world, uh, not just on those issues, but other things, whether it's national issues um, like climate change and immigration. And I mean, these things that are happening are impacting us as a profession, but it's also happening, it's impacting our clients and the people that use our buildings in significant ways. And we just have to be, we have to have a louder voice about these things and, and demonstrate that architects can be leaders in that way. Yeah. I think the, um, the professional graphic design practice has gotten a lot better in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years about saying no to spec work and, you know, not doing this work for free just so somebody can pick, you know, one of 12, like you talked about. So I was, I was really surprised to learn how, um, how prevalent these design competitions still are in the architecture space, especially the unpaid ones, which, yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think the more that the profession turns their back to those kind of clients, the less we'll, we'll see those crap creeping up. Yeah. And I just, I don't think we've been, willing enough to talk about it openly to make people think, Oh, well, you know, you're right. We shouldn't do that. And to also get the client world to say, it's not understand that it's not appropriate either. Well, guy for, um, maybe young designers or architects, uh, what's your favorite piece of advice to share with them or maybe the best piece of advice you've ever received? (laughs) Well, I would say for a young architect, uh, uh, hang in there. (laughs) Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a hard, I mean, it's a, it's a hard profession. Uh, it's, uh, long hours and hard work. And I'm, I know that sometimes it doesn't feel like, uh, um, 
you're always getting where you want to get. And it takes a long time to build a building. You know, there, I, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the show on uh, Netflix called Abstract. Oh, yeah. I was hoping you'd bring that up. But yeah, but um, I actually happened to watch the. Uh, I've watched most of about half of, I guess, the uh, episodes. But I watched the Bjorki Engels yeah. one yesterday, last night, and uh, he said something which was really pretty interesting. Is that you know. Uh, they look at projects and they know that it's going to be the next seven years of their lives. And are they, you know, are they going to be passionate enough to do that project for, and, and stay committed to that project for seven years? And I think that that's, that's very true. It's uh, architecture um, takes a long time. And from the moment that you kind of start pursuing a project and win it and design it and get it built, uh, it, it, there's a lot of frustrations along the way. There's a lot of um, obstacles that are thrown in your way, uh, and you have to really be passionate about it to stay committed to it. But it's one of the most rewarding things I can think of uh, to do because you leave behind uh, a real legacy that not just for yourself, but hopefully will serve society and be meaningful for people to use for many, many years. So it's, it's very rewarding in that regard. But um, for young people, I think, uh, especially these days where, you know, I think uh, we were all impatient. I mean, I was impatient when I got out of school too, but I think everybody wants things to happen so fast and um, that it takes time and it takes diligence and it takes perseverance and all that. And it's, it's just part of the, the profession and what we have to do to stay committed. Um, and, you know, over a career, over a life of being in it, um, it's extremely rewarding to look back and see what has been accomplished. I think that's, uh, that's great advice. And I would definitely second the recommendation to check out Abstract. On Netflix yeah. is just an yeah. awesome series. Unbiased plug. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a great series. Well, hey, Guy, before we let you go, maybe um, tell us about where our listeners can uh, find you online or learn more about FXFAL or about AIA New York. Okay. Well, uh, as far as the firm is concerned, our website is www.fxfal.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn um, uh, by just, uh, you know, searching for FX file, you'll find our pages. We do a lot of social media. And um, as far as the AIA, the uh, New York chapter uh, website is uh, AIANY.org. And the uh, uh, national website is just AIA.org. Um, so there are a lot of great resources at all of those places. And um, uh, certainly our website here for the firm has a lot of great information, not just about our projects, but we publish white papers and uh, other information that people might be interested in as well. Beautiful. Well, Guy Geyer, it has been a pleasure catching up with you, sir. And thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that was episode number 59 in the books. Thank you so much for listening and being part of the show. 
If you have any thoughts on who you think we should interview next, please tweet to at Obsessed Show or I'm at Josh Miles. We always love to get tips. And a lot of our great guests have come from recommendations from listeners like you. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. Visit milesherndon.com to learn more. Our show music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe. And our show is always edited by the very talented Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com for more information. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.